Well, it's good to see you tonight. Uh, special week, really, isn't it? Uh, this week leading up to Easter time, conscious of, uh, in a sense, uh, standing on holy ground when it comes to Palm Sunday. And we've been thinking over this last few Sunday mornings uh, uh, just of all that's involved, really uh, hard for us to grasp, really, the enormity, the depth of uh, the suffering um, of, of the Lord Jesus and so forth. And uh, uh, in a week like this, well, uh, I trust that the Lord will bless us as we, as we try to focus our, our thoughts uh, on, uh, on the Lord and what He has done for us. Well, we're, in a sense, we are tonight going to tackle something which is kind of alongside Easter, in a way, uh, although we're in John uh, chapter 11, John chapter 11, uh, and uh, I, hopefully you'll see the, the, uh, the link anyhow as, we, as we, we go through. John chapter 11, and this is uh, the story of, of Lazarus. We're going to take time to read the whole story <clears throat> from verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his disciples, his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now, Jesus had not yet, not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you led him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And we end our reading there at verse 48. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you this evening and we ask again that as we gather around your word, you will come to us. Come to us in our need. Lord, we recognize that it's not within the ability of man to open up your word, to understand it, to grasp its implications by ourselves. But Lord, we need the ministry and the unction of the Holy Spirit. We need that illumination that comes only from above. And we pray this evening that, Lord, in these moments, you will just open our eyes afresh to see wonderful things out of your law. Bless us, Lord. Remember the preaching of your word, Lord, and other places this evening too. May it, uh, your word go forth and may it have its rewards and its fruits in the hearts and lives of many this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle John has a very definite aim in writing down his gospel, writing his account and life of the ministry of Jesus. And he actually tells us, he states it towards the end of the gospel, where he says that if all the books in the world uh, were written about Jesus, they couldn't contain all that he did and said. But he says this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So John's purpose is evangelical, evangelistic. John's purpose is to bring men and women into a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And uh, for that to happen, they need to know truly who he is. They need to recognize who Jesus is. And so in his writing about Jesus and in the way in which he records what Jesus teaches, John continually is bringing before us the fact that Jesus Christ is God. So, for example, uh, we read uh, in John 3 verse 16, it's explicit there, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. In chapter 5 verse 17, we have looked at some of these passages together. Jesus says himself, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. In chapter 10, verse 30, which we looked at just a wee while back, he said, I and my father are one. Jesus is the Messiah. John is anxious and concerned that we should see who he is, that he is the Son of God. And that, if you like, is the primary focus of the, the evangelist as he writes down uh, his record under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's presenting Jesus as the Son of God. And unless men and women see and understand who he is, they won't be saved. There are those who blindly or foolishly or perhaps carelessly uh, view Jesus as merely a good man. Or they talk of him as a brilliant teacher. Or they set him up as an outstanding example. And all of those things are true, but they don't get to the heart of it. And John is concerned that we should see more than the fact that he was a good man, that he was a brilliant teacher, that he was an outstanding example, but that we should see that he is the Son of God. Indeed, that he is God the Son. And for men and women to be saved, for men and women to come into a, a knowledge of eternal life, they must come into a knowledge of the one who offers that eternal life. And therefore, they must recognize and see who he is. And so, this truth of the deity of Christ, of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, permeates the whole of John's gospel. Now, again, I think I've said this to you before, but in the Hebrew mind, the idea of sonship had no concept or it had no idea of superiority and inferiority in it. Um, we, we think of father and son, and we think of the father being greater than the son. We think, if you like, of the son of being subject to the father, uh, perhaps inferior to the father. But actually, in the Hebrew mindset, that wasn't the case. The idea of sonship, em, sonship emphasized the sameness of essence. In other words, Jesus as the Son of God is God. He is of the divine essence. And this is what John wants us to see. He, he, it permeates the gospel, as I say. All that John records, guided by the Holy Spirit, is fixing our eyes on Jesus as the Son of God. Now, no one, not even the, the fiercest enemies of Jesus could deny the reality of his miracles. But tragically, many of them were blind to their significance. 
They could not see beyond what's done. And in fact, some of them attributed these miracles even to the work of the devil, as you know. So they were, they were blind. They did not see uh, that there was a significance in what Jesus was doing. Not just a, a if you like, a physical uh, healing, um, which was obviously uh, part of it all. But behind that, that there were spiritual lessons being taught by the physical healings that Jesus was carrying out. And it's very, it's, it's interesting to follow through John's gospel, you know, and to see what Jesus is saying. It's, it's clear that the miracles declared and they, they made clear profound spiritual truths about Jesus and about the gospel. And it seems, in fact, almost that there's a kind of a progression in the revelation that we see uh, bit by bit more and more clearly really who Jesus is. A.W. Pink uh, has a very interesting, uh, he records a very interesting development, an accumulation, if you like, of, of spiritual truths presented to us in the story of the gospel as we move through it, and lead, which lead us to the, the glorious climax, the greatest miracle of all, of course, which we're going to be celebrating next week at Easter time. But there is this progression, and here's what he says. He says, if you go back to John chapter 2, it says, they have no wine talking about the people at the wedding uh, at Cana. No wine. The absence of true joy and fulfillment and enrichment in the lives of men and women. They were strangers to the divine joy, the joy that only Christ can bring. Then we move on and we, we read about a certain nobleman's son being sick. And this sickness again reflecting uh, the diseased human soul. Because uh, in our hearts is this uh, poison of sin. Uh, and there is that sickness, really, which lies beyond the physical ailments which af- affect us and afflict us. We come to the Pool of Bethesda, and there was a man there who was an invalid for 38 years. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of total helplessness. This man was helpless. When the waters were troubled, he couldn't get into the water. He had no ability to move to the healing waters. We see Jesus feeding the 5,000, the crowd without food, people spiritually hungry, starving, dying. We see the man blind from birth. And the fact that the eyes of the sinners, the, the eyes of the mind of sinners are closed to the truth of the gospel. So there's that kind of accumulation of, of spiritual truths that's being taught by the miracles that Jesus does. And here we come in John chapter 11 to another miracle. And it's an interesting one as we come up to Easter time, of course, and remember the resurrection of the Lord. See, the Lord Jesus, as he met these needy people, he met all their needs. He met their physical needs. And, and why he, he touched them was to bring healing to them and healing to their bodies. There was a genuine concern for their physical well-being. But beyond that concern for their physical well-being was Christ's concern for their spiritual well-being. And he is able to meet all their needs. He can address every aspect of man's spiritual condition. Why? Because he is the Son of God. Because he is God the Son. And here in chapter 11, 
Christ's supreme authority and his divine glory are displayed in his power to confront the ultimate disease, which is death itself. And our Lord can confront that. John adds a significant statement of Martha here that by the time Jesus arrived at the tomb, he stinketh, is what the AV says. The ESV puts it rather more politely, says there is an odor. But the body was decaying. It was rotting. It was stinking. It had been in the grave for four days. And remember that uh, the Middle East is doesn't have the same cool uh, temperatures as we do. So uh, it was absolutely true what she was saying. So this is not some resuscitation. There's no slate of hand here. This isn't a magic trick of some sort. Lazarus is dead and he's decaying. Lower than this, you can't go, someone has said. In this picture, you have the ultimate, desperate, spiritual condition of men and women brought before us. They're dead. Just as Lazarus was dead, already returning to the dust from which he was made, so men and women are spiritually dead. No flicker of life, not even a glimmer of life. Now, what evidence have we to support the view? Maybe you say to me tonight, John, hold on a minute, you're spiritualizing this uh, miracle. But you see, there is evidence here that Jesus wants to teach a profound spiritual truth from the physical miracle that he is going to perform. And it's here plainly for us. Look carefully at Jesus' statement in verse 4, where he, when he has heard of Lazarus' illness, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And look later on at verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then he says this, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. <laughs> now, the sisters would have been very happy for him to be there. But Jesus says, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So beyond the physical miracle, beyond the wonder that they're going to see and which Christ is going to perform, there is this teaching of a profound spiritual truth. So what we have here is, first of all, a miracle which will be a revelation of the Son of God. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And this is the consistent, persistent emphasis of the apostle in the gospel. He wants us to see Jesus, the Son of God. And it's for God's glory. It is for God's glory. It's to reveal more of God to those who witness this. Not only to the unbelievers, but also to uh, the disciples themselves. He says to them that he... For, for your sake, uh, I, I'm glad it's not there, so that you may believe, so that their faith will be strengthened and deepened and made more sure. And it is, of course, for Christ's glory. And to me, very clearly here, there's a, a claim to equality with God, um, where, where uh, if you like, this uh, miracle is for the glory of God and for the glory of Christ. 
Illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we have John saying, this is God the Son here. This is God the Son and his ministry. Well, how does Christ do the impossible here? That which is dead and already stinking with decay is brought to life. How? By the power of his creative word. You remember right at the beginning of John, how is Christ presented to us? In him was life. The life was the light of men. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You see, when Jesus spoke, this was the voice of God. This was the voice of the creator God speaking into the tomb and into the realm of death. Now, it's clear from the story, from the account here, that when word came from the sisters to Jesus, Jesus knew what he would do. He didn't immediately rush to the grave. In fact, John makes the point very clearly that he waited two more days before setting off with his disciples for Bethany. And again, this is the Son of God in control. Pastor David has been reminding us, you know, in in the path to the cross uh, over these last couple of weeks, that in all of this, uh, Christ was still in control. He was not out of control of the situation. And here again, we see Christ in control of this whole situation here. Um, uh, And he was in control in the face of of the, the worst that sin could do. The worst that sin could do. Jesus was still in control. And a legitimate question arises here, I think, and one which we can ask and one which we should answer. Why tell Jesus of these things when already he's in control and knows what he's going to do? Why tell Jesus? I know if we're asking a very simple question, why pray? Why pray? If the Lord knows the end from the beginning, if he knows what he's going to do, what's the point in us praying? Well, two things. Prayer is not telling God what he doesn't know because he knows all things. But prayer is a recognition and an admission of our utter dependence upon him. We're not saying to God we're we're giving you some information about things you don't know anything about. What we're saying to him is, here is a situation and we can do nothing about it. (laughs) We have to stand back. We have to let you work. We have to let you do your work. So it's an expression of our utter dependence upon him. When we bow our knees, as were, whether we do it actually physically or where we do it in our hearts as we come to prayer, what we're saying to God is that we can't make it on our own. We can't do it ourselves. We are utterly dependent upon you. And then the second thing is this. Prayer is, if we may put it like this, reaching out the hand of faith. Reaching out the hand of faith. Jesus always responds to the sincere expression of faith. Always. He never responds in the face of rebellious lack of trust. But he always responds to sincere expression of faith. Do you remember Nazareth when he went to the, 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 the synagogue in Nazareth? And we record what words are very sad. He could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. He could do no mighty work there because 
of their unbelief. And so prayer, if you like, is reaching out this hand of faith. Now, sometimes as believers, we, we berate ourselves because we pray and our prayers are not answered. At least they're not answered in the way that we want them to be answered. And the question then, and the devil, I think, puts this question into our hearts at times, well, maybe we haven't got enough faith. Maybe we haven't got the right quality of faith. Maybe we haven't really got faith at all. Remember what Jesus said elsewhere? He said, if your faith is a grain of mustard seed. Christ isn't interested in the amount of faith. Spurgeon said, look, if you have the littlest faith, if there is sincerity in that, that's what God's looking for. Not the amount of faith. Not great faith. I believe that there are men and women of God to whom God gave a very special gift of faith down through the centuries. And we can read of them. Um, uh, men and women who stepped out and they, they did, if you like, they walked into the impossible in a situation with, with absolute confidence. I believe there's a, perhaps a special gift of faith there um, those people. The point is this, he's looking in us for just a, a genuine seed of faith. Not a great faith, not a great amount of faith, but a true faith. And to that, Jesus will always respond. Now, you're going to think to yourself, this boy Bernie's contradicting himself um, tonight because I have to then say to you that Scripture consistently demands a response from men and women. We are held responsible for our decision-making. Um, the sovereign call of God for his sheep to follow him in no way relieves men and women of their responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. We must reach out the hand of faith. And to that action of faith, Jesus will always respond. But you say to me, John, you told us a moment ago that we're spiritually dead, that we're incapable of reaching forth, that there's no glimmer of light, there's not the flicker of life, there's not the faintest glimmer. You know, if you think about this, and perhaps this is the first part of the, there are three things I think that this three spiritual truths that this story brings before us very clearly. And the first one is this, that, that we are spiritually dead in our natural state. We are spiritually dead. And you say, well, well, how then can you expect that which is spiritually dead to reach out the hand of faith? We've already said that death is spiritual. Death and decay is no lower. Uh, no lower can you go than that. It's the ultimate picture of our spiritual helplessness, our utter inability. You can lecture a corpse. You can exhort it to reach better standards. You can rebuke the corpse for past failures. You can invite it to try again. You can promise. You can threaten. You can bribe. But there's not a glimmer of hope, not a glimmer of life. All are useless, for the corpse cannot of itself respond. Bring the voice of philosophers, bring the voice of teachers, of counselors, even bring the voice of preachers to the ears of the corpse. All will fail because there is no life 
to respond. Not even an inclination or a movement. Now, before we go on to try to explain ourselves, is that how you see yourself in your unsaved condition? Those of us who are believers now, we can look back and we can realize that we did come to a point where we saw there's absolutely nothing we can do here for ourselves. God must do it. But if you're outside of Christ tonight, I want to ask you, is this how you see yourself? Lower you cannot go. And in the place of death and spiritual decay, lower you can't go. And until you see yourself in that utterly hopeless, helpless situation, you will never be saved. Until you grasp the enormity of your spiritual condition. Well, you say to me, but, but explain this contradiction where you tell me on the one hand the corpse can't respond, on the other hand you're saying reach out the hand of faith. Well, you see it in the miracle, don't you? Lazarus could come forth himself. There was no way he could release himself from the pains of death. But the one who called him forth is the creator God. And the word which he spoke is a life-giving word. So when he calls, he gives life. When he calls, he gives the ability to respond. He, if you like, recreates. He recreates out of the dust, if you like, and out of death. And it's Christ alone who has the power to deliver from this penalty of sin. Because he is the Son of God. Because he is the Creator. Only one voice can transform the situation. And that's brought to us in a number of ways here. Mary and Martha, for example, immediately sent for Jesus when Lazarus is dead. And Mary says to him when he comes, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Christ told his disciples that he would be able to awaken him from the sleep of death. Verse 11. And the miracle to follow was to confirm the faith of the disciples. Martha gives expression to the truth when Jesus challenges her. You know, in, in verse 22, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Interesting, the order. The resurrecting power of Christ which brings life, new life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she gives this wonderful, wonderful confession. I believe you are the Christ. Who? The Son of God. There it is again. He's coming into the world. No one else can repair this situation. No one else can transform this situation. But Jesus can. Why? Because he's the Son of God, the Creator of God. We, by nature, are spiritually dead. 
Christ alone has the power to deliver from the penalty of sin. And then to come back to this idea of the response. Faith is the hand by which we enter into this blessing of new life. What shines through in this whole episode here is the faith of Mary and Martha. Little or nothing is said about the disciples except that the miracle would stimulate and encourage their faith. But Mary and Martha believed the unbelievable because their faith was in no less than the Son of God. And how that faith was rewarded when out of the death and decay of the tomb their beloved brother emerged alive and well. Do you ever try to imagine yourself as part of that crowd? I wonder what you would have thought. Imagine the response of those who witnessed it. I, I think in some sense it would have been a bit scary. But absolutely incredible. As the tomb is opened and out comes this body still bound in the grave clothes, having been dead for four days. And they loose him, set him free from the grave clothes, and he continues to live. As expected, many of the people who witnessed this believed convinced of the, of the truth of Jesus as the Son of God, the Creator, the one who brings new life. And, and, and I hope, I hope that if I had been part of that crowd, that would have been my reaction. This is no less than God at work. God the Son, bringing that resurrecting word, that life-giving word, to that which is dead and giving new life. But unbelievably, in that crowd, there were those who acted with treachery. <clears throat> and what they did was they went and they reported the events to the enemies of Jesus. Why did they do that? They did that because they were opposed to Jesus. They did that in order to, uh, to, to put Jesus down, to put him away. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees far from being converted or convinced because of this, became more determined to finally get rid of the Son of God. You know, it is unbelievable, isn't it? And yet this morning, if you were here this morning and we were in God's Word this morning, we, we, we saw the, the, the awfulness of it, the, the dreadfulness of it, the wickedness of those who are opposed to Jesus, that by any means, fair or foul, and mostly foul, they were determined to get rid of this man whom Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And here again, as Christ does what no one else could do, there are those who harden their hearts and stiffen their necks and rebel against the Son of God. Do you know every time a sinner is saved, a miracle of resurrection takes place. 
I was brought up in a Christian home, became a, certainly would date my, my act of Christian faith from when I was 14, but I believe that God perhaps saved me when I was nine. Brought up in a Christian home, taught to go to church, Sunday school. My Sunday used to start with morning Bible class in the local congregational church and then off to my home Baptist church for the morning service. And then in the afternoon I went to two Sunday schools and then in the evening went to the evening service and then sometimes after the evening service was a gathering in one of the, the folks' houses where everybody got together for an evening of fellowship and that kind of thing. It was a, that was Sunday. And I, I know you'll find it strange, but I used to be a bit jealous about people giving their testimony and could tell about being drunk and being uh, bad livers and being in prison and then getting saved. And I would think to myself, boys, I don't have much of a testimony, do I? You know? Brought up in a Christian home, always knew that God was, always knew that Christ was the Son of God, always knew that He had died for sinners, always believed that the Bible was God's Word. I don't have much of a testimony. Except when you come here, you realize this. Every time a person is saved, a miracle of resurrection takes place. And if you're a believer tonight, you've already been resurrected once. Oh, you're going to be resurrected again one day. Praise the Lord. But you've already been resurrected once. You've been brought out of the death of sin. And that's why Christ spoke about being born again and the need to be born again. And it's only possible because the one who did it is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not merely that he provides resurrection or he provides new life. Though those statements are true, but what he says is he is the resurrection and he is the life. And when sinners turn to Christ and are saved, the Apostle Paul's favorite phrase becomes a reality. We become in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in the one who is the resurrection and the life. But to enjoy that blessing, you must know him. You must come into a new relationship with him. It's not enough that you know about him, that you can quote the creeds, that you can quote scripture, that you can say your prayers. You must come to know him. Because in him is life. He is the resurrection and the life. A new life is to be found not in obedience to a creed or in religious rites or ceremony. In practicing religion, it is in relationship to him. John puts it very plainly later on in one of his letters uh, when he's writing. Very plainly, very simply, a great, tremendous blessing for the Christian and a tremendous challenge for the non-Christian. This is what he says. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. May the Lord bless his word to us this evening as we come to Easter time and as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see in it the climactic work, if you like, of the Savior who came to raise dead souls to glory with him. May the Lord bless his word tonight too.